Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Anup Rastogi. Dr. Rastogi is a nationally renowned and respected cosmetic surgeon based in the heart of Double Bay in Sydney, Australia. Dr. Rastogi completed his surgical training at home in Australia before travelling overseas to complete his advanced training in cosmetic surgery under the tutelage of people such as Giorgio Fisher, the father of liposculpture. Dr. Rastogi is a fellow of the Australian College of Cosmetic Surgery, well known for his prowess in breast surgery, liposculpture and facelift surgery. Over the past few years, he's become noted for his beautiful body contour work and currently sees patients from across the country and around the world. He's particularly well known for his very natural style of breast surgery using autologous fat transfer techniques. Good morning, Dr. Rastogi. Thanks for joining us. A pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. You're um, known by a few people as uh, the snow leopard. Uh, <laughs> you're very <laughs> difficult to spot. You're sort of uh, a mystery to a lot of people. So we're glad we've uh, finally got you here. <laughs> oh, indeed. Yeah, I, I used to have a very high profile once upon a time and, and I just, um, I, I like to keep it uh, lower now. Yeah. As long as my patients know me and the work I do as well. Yeah. You know, it's good. I think that's, your that's work speaks for itself, to be fair. So you don't need to do anything. <laughs> Thank you very much just for saying. So I guess for people, um, we, I guess we've got listeners not just in, in Sydney, Australia, but all over the world. So just for anyone listening who doesn't know who Dr. Rastogi is, do you want to give yeah. us just a little bit um, of a background about you and sort of your journey to where you're at now? Sure. Um, so I'm a, a, a cosmetic surgeon. I'm a fellow of the Australasian College of Cosmetic Surgery. Um, I sit on the council of the Australasian College. I'm a former secretary of, of that college and have sat on the, um, the ethics and academic committees of those colleges. Um, my, I have specific fields of practice that, um, that I really enjoy within cosmetic surgery. Um, in my uh, surgical side, Breast augmentation is a, is a huge part of my practice. Um, facelifts, uh, liposuction and fat grafting. Yep. Um, so the stuff that I love to do is artistic stuff yep. uh, and um, things that create beautiful shapes with minimal scarring uh, are my favourite things. Yeah. I do lots of non-surgical uh, treatments as well, primarily uh, wrinkle relaxing injections yep. and dermal fillers. Yep. Um, and I, I started that very early in my training. And so um, my training is not conventional. So I, I didn't train from plastic and reconstructive surgery. I did my basic surgical training in Australia um, and I have uh, um, a medical degree from Australia. But then I went overseas to do my advanced training in cosmetic surgery. Yep. So I, I, I trained in Rome under a guy called Giorgio Fisher. Yeah. He, he's the guy who, uh, he and his father, uh, Arpad Fisher, developed liposuction. Yep. And so I trained under him and Pierre Fournier in Paris. Have I got this wrong? Was he a dermatologist? 
anesthesiologist? No, no, no. He was um, no, he was a, a an ENT surgeon. Actually. Right, ENT. Yeah, he started from 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 ENT, um, and a very good friend of his. Uh, was a guy called Pierre Fournier in Paris who was um, a plastic surgeon and uh, and the two of them together really popularized the procedure. Mm. Um, and so I studied under both of those guys and a, and a really talented um, surgeon uh, called Jean-Luc Bichelier in Paris who just, I, I met him at a conference once 25 years ago and I saw his his photographs of his liposuction and it was the dream that I'd been looking for mm. you know I'd heard lots of people talk about it I'd read all the articles I was working with the guys that developed it and yes you could make bodies slimmer but I was looking for those beautiful contours and that lovely smooth skin you know that you that you dream of as being the procedure and, and I hadn't seen it until I, I went to the French Society of Liposuction meeting and um, so was anyone even doing lipo back then in Australia I, uh, yes, but it, in its very rudimentary forms, you know, great big cannulas, very rough <laughs> techniques, yeah, not not the finesse of today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and that, and that's what I had gone overseas to learn. Um, and so I did that in. Uh, so I, I studied under those guys, um, and then I did a fellowship in uh, between Cambridge and, and London under a guy called Anthony Arian, who was the president of the European Academy of Cosmetic Surgery. Mm. Uh, and so. I, 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 you know, I, I had some wonderful training and a huge experience. So. so you kind of developed your own fellowship in a way. Yes. Well, see, in those days, uh, cosmetic surgery was a, a newer specialty and there really wasn't any high-level training in Australia for it. Yeah. So you could do plastic and reconstructive surgery. And in fact, uh, I remember uh, talking to some of my father's friends who were plastic surgeons. My father was an anaesthetist. And, and you know, I went to them and said, look, I, I, I want to do, you know, really high-level cosmetic surgery. And they laughed at me and said, you, you, you're not going to find exist. that. Here. Yeah, not here. So I, I went to where you could find it. That's great. Yeah. Because yeah. it was fairly uncharted territory back then, wasn't it, really? It was emerging and yeah. people were trying to find their, their way. Well, yeah, it wasn't, you know, today having a facelift, having a breast augmentation, having a liposuction is, is commonplace. In those days, it was for the rich and famous, um, it was it was for the elite, yeah. um, and there wasn't a lot of experience in Australia at the time of really high level stuff. Yeah. So when I went to to Cambridge and worked under Anthony Arian, I did I did a hundred facelifts in the time that I was with him. Wow. Well, that's you know I've got plastic uh, surgery registrar friends, and we've spoken to surgeons, and I've done my time in hospital, and mm. it's very hard to get that experience in a formal training program. Yeah. So unless like you've done yourself, I actually don't know if you'd get that experience under the so-called guise of formal training. No, no, you don't. That, that's and so they're all private fellowships, and um, basically there are only a certain number of surgeons who are that busy and who have that level of talent and who are also willing to to share their knowledge and um, and yeah. And you've also picked and chosen, you know, what you really want to excel in, not just be a general. You know, plastic surgeon do everything. That's right. You know, there, there, there are procedures that um, appeal to me because of either the the finesse with which they're done, or the artistic ability that is also required alongside surgical skill. And and those are the things that um, that really appeal to me. So, you grew up in Newcastle. Yes. And your mum was an artist, or is still an artist? Yeah, me, my mum was an artist. My yep. father. Um, was uh, an anaesthetist. Yeah. So I grew up as um, as the son of a, a, a doctor and an artist. And, right. and I 
I had a love for both. Um, medicine was the, the noble profession. It was, it was what I always wanted to do. Um, but I, I had that, that artistic sensibility and that, uh, that desire to create. Um, and so, um, I remember, uh, I'd always wanted to do cosmetic surgery. Um, I was, I was doing my, um, in my training, I was doing spinal surgery and orthopedics and, you know, those were great areas in which to train your hands, but I was doing the same operation, you know, a knee replacement, a hip replacement, spinal surgery. It's the same, same operation every time. Um, and I was looking for something where, um, where I could create and where, um, everything was, you know, each time was a new design and, um, and, um, um, yeah, you know, I've always had a, a love for the female form. I adore women. Um, so does David. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got something to tell us, Jay? <laughs> I mean, that being said, I've been you know happily married for twenty five years. So <laughs> okay. yeah. my my love for women is is in terms of the beauty of the form. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the second I had a chance to uh, to leave and go overseas and do my advanced training. And I was lucky in those days, there weren't a lot of Australians overseas. And, you know, those big fellowships that I did uh, were largely capitalised by Americans. And, um, and I looked good on paper, but I think part of what got me there was because people loved Australians and, and they thought it was a breath of fresh air to have, you know, this young Australian guy come in and, and you know, I'm just so eager to learn. So, what year did you finally move back and set up your practice? So I finished my advanced training in '98 yeah. and and came home and um, set up and got really busy really quickly. Because yeah. what, I mean, what was the industry like? I, I guess what I should have asked. I mean, who who was around and and what was being offered and why was it so bad? Okay, so yeah, so in those days, the it, it, I'd actually come back just at the time when uh, advertising regulations had just relaxed. Before that time, really the only way you could find your way to um, a surgeon to do your stuff is through a, a GP referral mm -hmm. um, because there were you couldn't find out about individual doctors. Um, it was very hard to find your way unless you were the head of the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons, say, where you... Um, were a spokesperson. Um, and so um, as those advertising laws had just relaxed and doctors could talk about their training and also for the first time, doctors were allowed to publish photographs of their work. Right. And I had, you know, because of my, my love for the, you know, the, the female form, creating beautiful natural breasts, creating beautiful liposculptures, it was my thing, you know, and so I wasn't trying to make an implanted looking breast. My desire was to make a beautiful natural breast. And so that's, that's what mine were. That's what I'd studied to do. And those were the photos that I produced. And, and when people saw those, yeah. uh, in fact, I got into a lot of trouble because I had detractors at the time who hadn't seen that stuff saying, oh, they were photoshopped and that, yeah. that was, you know, that was not... I was not possible. Uh, that's right. And that I was pushing out unrealistic expectations, but it, you know, it's just, it was new for the time. Yeah. Now, anatomical implants had just come out. Um, I was using them, you know, I was looking at it differently. It's not taking this round implant and sticking it in the body. It was shaping a teardrop, 
pocket. It was um, looking at where the nipple would sit, what the cleavage would look like, what the balance of the, the shoulders, the waist, the hips were, yeah. and then creating a breast that... that um, produced harmony and beauty with the figure yeah, yeah i can really resonate with that i mean it's the same as injectables you mm. can stick on a cheek or a yes. lip or you can look at the whole thing uh, the whole face and make it blend and harmonious and proportioned and light and dark shadow reflexes and contours and it just looks normal yeah yeah <laughs> speaking my language that yeah beautifully put too okay thank you <laughs> well it's only the work that's either uh, on purpose done that way or not done well that becomes obvious to people. Some people want that exaggerated look, I guess, but yes. I guess for the practitioner, they're probably not wanting it to look obvious. And when we see these magazine covers with botched mm. work, it, it's we're just seeing the, the percentage of, of stuff that hasn't gone according to plan. And then that's what everyone, I guess, associates because it's, you know, everyone everyone loves a disaster story or something, you know, out there. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, when you see someone that you can tell has had a facelift or had a breast augmentation, you assume that's what breast augmentations and facelifts look like. But in fact, what you're seeing is ones that look obvious. So you're actually, what you're seeing is poor work. Yes. Um, I remember talking to a casting agent at a, a dinner party once and she, and she said, look, no offence to you and your profession, but I would never cast anybody in a role with implants. You know, you, you, know, um, you just can't have fake breasts in movies. And I said, honey, you're doing it all the time. You just don't know because the good ones look real. Yeah. What you're saying is you won't cast a, a, a bad press job. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, right. But there, I guess there is that aesthetic that's emerged, is, which is that very exaggerated look. And I think we probably see it more being driven by the aesthetic of the United States a little bit more than probably what was initially here. But you definitely do see people, I get them coming into my clinics and they want that exaggerated look. It does. Very much so. Very much so. In fact, I, I remember having a conversation with a journalist, um, and this is going back 10, 15 years, um, and we were talking about um, breast augmentation and trends in breast surgery. Kardashians um, had... You know, exploded onto the scene and all of a sudden so at the time we were going for a more and more and more natural look because we could start to create those and then all of a sudden it had reversed and we were going back to bigger rounder because it was the Kardashian influence mm. but um, what was really interesting is when we were discussing it there is um, there's a trend that follows temperature so if you're if you're on the gold coast it's it's big breasts and big lips if you come to sydney it's more <laughs> modest and as you get down towards we've Melbourne, discussed this several yeah. times haven't we? in canberra probably even more conservative <laughs> exactly. so um and so um I'm, I'm i'm not the gold coast sort of surgeon um but you know even within um sydney there are there are demographics of those, you know, my sorts of patients that are probably, they're elegant women, they're, they're mums, um, they're people who, who um, are after beauty and balance. Um, and then there are other patients that I get who, who come to me not because they want a natural breast, but just they want a safe operation. You know, they, they want a low complication rate. And, and they say, look, I, I know you don't like to do it, but will you give me the implanted look? And you're happy to deliver that? I, I am, w within reason. Yeah. So I, I, I'm really happy to create a breast that is, you know, a, a does she, doesn't she? Um, but 
um, it's it's not my preference to to create you know bolted on looking breasts. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's good to stick to your principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you got into the industry, I can imagine it was um, dominated by um, plastic, plastic surgeons. And reconstructive um, surgeons. You're a cosmetic surgeon, yeah. and I guess without wanting to delve too much mm. into the politics mm. of cosmetic plastic surgeon, mm. there, there has been in the past some, um, I guess, I wouldn't say turf war. But oh, maybe yeah, no, there's a turf war. Turf war, well, or, um, <laughs> I guess... How did you navigate that? Because I can imagine in those days there would have been some people that may have been a bit territorial, or and how you seem to have been someone that's been accepted um, and 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 sort of seen as. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know what I'm getting at. You, yes, you, yeah. So in the um, so it was really tough in the early days. I, I had lots of people shooting at me. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's that that turf war still alive and running well today, but. <laughs> Back then, it, it was it was ferocious, but it was very, you know the people didn't have the sort of training that I had at yeah. the time. There were there were um, there were a, f- a number of surgeons who were actually very very good in Australia, uh, and and they produced you know lovely work. But in general, what you had was um, a series of surgeons that had public hospital appointments that did very noble reconstructive work, but would do the occasional breast augmentation, the occasional facelift. And, you know, practice makes perfect. Yeah. Uh, I, I had come back with a different sort of training. I, I'd come back having done pure training in, you know, in liposuctions, in breast augmentations, in facelifts. And I'd, I'd worked with a number of different surgeons doing hundreds and hundreds of cases of these. So I'd come back with a wealth of experience. And that was, on the one hand, um, threatening to some surgeons. Um, on the other hand, I, I had other surgeons who, uh, plastic and reconstructive surgeons who befriended me and would love to discuss um, different procedures and the way that we think about things and the way we treat things. Um, the other thing that, that I guess happened at the time is because I was the new kid on the block and I'd had a lot of experience in it, I was fixing up a lot of complications. So I would get a lot of complications that had come from some of my colleagues and it was very hard on the one hand to criticise me and on the other hand for me to be fixing problems that had been created <laughs> Um, did, and at that time, did you take the attitude, well, this will help my cause to say yes, or was it just a case of I can do it? Uh, in terms of? Fix the re- breast revisions uh, and the screw-ups. Okay. So, no. Um, I'm a doctor first. Yes. My, my obligation is to the patient. And so politics is something I actually don't like being involved with. At the end of the day, this, like I said, I, I, why medicine? Since I was three years old, I wanted to be a doctor. It's the noble profession. Yeah, I'm glad you so, said that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it, it, this is all about doing what's right for, for the patient. For people, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, in, and one doesn't need to be critical of one's colleagues. I think most surgeons do the best that they can, and I think they really have the patient's best interests at heart. Stuff goes wrong. And no one is perfect. Yeah, and, and somebody somebody needs to fix it. Yeah. And I think it's getting harder and harder for you, for you, for you guys and, and girls that, that, mm. that do this kind of work because people's expectations, I think, are becoming more and more particular. I mean, what someone might have been happy with 10 years ago, they're expecting perfection now because they're comparing themselves against Instagram people or the Kardashians. So I think the margin for error and, and how close you've got to get 
or even I guess exceed a patient's expectations is getting increasingly harder. Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, um, certainly uh, cosmetic surgery is one of those areas where you you live or die by the quality of the work that you do. Yeah. And we're a small enough country um, with a strong enough media that if you're good, you're known about. If you're not good, you're known about. Yeah. So, um, um, but it is all about the quality of the work. But you know, it's. A patient can't know exactly what to expect for surgery yep. unless you explain it to them. And so managing expectations in the first instance, you know, on, on my wall are just all of these beautiful photographs of patients of mine, um, artistic photos, because that's that's part of my sensibility. And it's, it is really incumbent upon me when I have a patient that cannot achieve that for whatever reason, you know, um, that they understand that. And, and I say to them, look, I know you've come to me because you've seen these pictures, but you have to understand this is where your nipples are or this is the amount of body covering that you have. And so we can create um, a really good improvement. We have to be careful where those lines are. And yeah. there's, luckily there's not many of those patients around. Yeah. And those that... that um, are in that um, situation tend to have some insight into that. But there is a, um, a, a, on the one hand, you really have to be as good as you say you are. Mm. And on the other hand, you need to be very clear when something is just not possible. Somebody who is five foot four cannot be made six foot. Yeah. Unless they put stilettos on. Right? <laughs> yeah. You can fake it occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to be better than what you say you are because you're better to undersell and over deliver. Than, Always. Yeah. Always. Or, and that, that is the thing. Um, yeah. uh, you know, your, your work speaks for itself. Yeah. One can afford to be um, more humble in the consultation. Absolutely. So patient selection is, seems to be something that's really important for, for, I guess, everyone, whether you're a cosmetic injector or a yes. surgeon. How do you go about that process? Because I'm assuming you, you want to make sure that you've got someone that you think's obviously of um, they're mentally sound, they're making yeah. decisions for the right reasons, yes. they've got realistic expectations. Yes. How do you go about your patient selection process? So, it, it's, so I do a lot of staff training in the first instance because I don't take the first phone call my staff do. And... Um, I explained to them there's a series of criteria that patients have, there are a series of expectations that patients have, and they will come to us because they feel we meet those expectations. But there are also expectations that we have, and um, and we need patients that will meet those expectations. And those are things like understanding um, the reality of what they'll they'll get from it, having surgery for the right reasons, being in a financial position to afford the surgery that they want to have. You know, it's wonderful to do beautiful cosmetic surgery, you, you, but you, you feed your children first. Yeah. You know, so um, so it's it's a bit paternalistic, but it starts from the first phone call that we um, we figure out whether we are doing harm or doing benefit by taking on a patient. Then when I see them, you know, understanding that cosmetic surgery is actually surgery on the psyche. It's not, it's not that their body isn't pretty enough. It's that the way that the person perceives their body isn't pretty enough for them. Yes. So what we're doing is operating on them so that it improves the way that they see themselves. Yeah. Right? So it's really, it's really surgery on the psyche. And therefore, the, um, the mental state of the patient, the emotional state of the patient is really, really important. 
if, if a young girl comes in and says, yes, I'm ha- I'd like to have a breast augmentation because my boyfriend doesn't think my breasts are big enough. Mm. Like, that's a red flag. Huge red flag. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with your breasts. There's something wrong with your boyfriend. So the thing to change is not not you in that circumstance. Same, there are other patients when they're going through depression, when they're in the middle of a messy divorce. um, And, you know, having a facelift or a breast augmentation is not a way to win back your partner. Yeah. Yeah. But if it helps your self-esteem and makes you feel better about yourself and that turns on a light inside you, that's fine. So it's not that I'm going through these things in life, therefore, you know, you won't be operated on. We operate for the right reasons. Sure. And um, just like I will check, check a patient's history, um, do they have heart disease? Do they have diabetes? Do they have lung disease? Do they have something that makes their surgery dangerous and therefore something as elective as cosmetic procedure shouldn't be done? Yeah. Same thing goes for their emotional state, for their mental state. Do they have a mental illness? Do they have a body dysmorphic disorder? Do they have depression or self-loathing that can, that should be fixed not by altering their body but by giving them a true frame to look at themselves with? Yeah. Do you work closely with a psychologist or a psychotherapist? Yeah. So uh, well, we do a lot of it in-house. Yeah. Um, um, but if there, is, if there is somebody that um, I feel... Um, would benefit from surgery, but has red flags that concern me, then I then I send them off to a psychologist and I tell the patients straight, I'm doing this and I explain it just like I explained it to you with, with you know, with heart disease. My job's to first do no harm. Yeah. If I did an operation on them, something didn't go quite right, would they react? Would it push them in the, into a darker place where they shouldn't be taken? And so um, uh, um, that that's when we use a psychologist. The other thing is, if you have a patient that you're letting down, that you're saying, look, I'm not going to offer you surgery, one has to do that very, very gently because these are people that come on and bear their souls. They're self-conscious about what they're coming to you with and they have a fear of being rejected, being ridiculed. So if you're not going to operate on them, you have to let them down very, very gently and, um, and explain to them in terms that um, don't diminish them as a person when you do that. And it's always an awkward conversation, mm. but it's a necessary one. Yeah, you'll see it the same with injectables. 100%. Yeah. And no yeah. one trains you guys for this. I mean, correct me, no. correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, when you're doing, say, knees and hips where it's a functional problem, mm. someone can either move that joint again yes. properly or they can't yes. and it's probably i guess it could have impact on psyche but you're not changing the way that they look you're changing the functionality of their body but when you're dealing with the way that someone um or the rest of the world views them yes there's a whole other dimension there of stuff Absolutely. that you've got to sort of navigate through yeah. and i've got to say things are changing now but in days gone by people who self-select them as surgeons are typically not the the people who have those sorts of skills of of empathy and um and the, so you know you, you're talking about somebody who likes to get in there and make those physical changes there, there is a certain you know surgeons are a certain sort of person 100 percent um yeah. and we've met and them all the time typically yeah and so to get that combination um all together of being being human um being able to listen because you can't create what a patient wants if you haven't heard what they want and if you can't if you can't make a patient relaxed enough so that they feel that they can tell you what they actually want, how on earth are you going to know and then how on earth are you going to create it? Yeah. So 
the, the series of skills, if you want to be really good at this, you know, of having the artistic skill, having the surgical finesse, having the capability in your hands and having the ability to put patients at ease and talk to them and explain to them um, to get what, what they need um, and uh, to be able to achieve it. It's, you know, it's a perfect storm that comes together mm. w- w- when you get it right. And there's, you know, we've got some really good people in, in um, the cosmetic surgery and the plastic surgery field. Yeah, absolutely. Days. Now, one of the procedures that you love to do, um, I guess you've become r- very renowned for it, is uh, your body contouring yes. and fat grafting yes. procedures. So do you want to talk to us a little yeah, bit about okay. that? Yeah, okay. So... Um, I, um, for, for 22 years, I've been doing breast augmentations and, um, you know, some of the pictures that hang up on my wall are are 20 years old and they look, you know, the same as the ones that I do now. What, um, has changed is that we have now available to us another way of doing it. And that's doing a thing called an autologous fat graft, where we do a liposculpture and take the body's the, the patient's own fat um, and then graft that into the breast to, to build up a beautiful three-dimensional shape. And I love doing it. In the past, um, I mean, th- it's, not, it's not new. It's, it was um, first described, you know, over 25 years ago. It was very quickly pushed into disrepute. Um, and it was considered um, quite an, an unreasonable and unethical thing to do for a long time. And the reason behind that, you know, when you think about it, you think, well, why would that be the case? And it's for things that aren't at first apparent. It's because in the early days of it, the question is how much fat was going to survive. Today, we've got beautiful grafting techniques and we get great fat survival. In the early days, the things that promoted graft survival weren't as well understood. And so there was that, that perhaps the results weren't as permanent as they should be. More importantly... Each living cell has a little bit of calcium in it. Mm. When each cell dies, it leaves behind that bit of calcium. The concern in the past had been that if you fat graft the breasts and a lot of the fat doesn't survive and it leaves behind calcium deposits, it interferes with mammograms. One in, Austra- one in seven Australian women get breast cancer. You cannot interfere with mammograms. It cannot interfere with the early detection of breast cancer. And so that was the concern, that you'll do this and, and you'll make it difficult to diagnose breast cancers. What's, what really changed and what has allowed us to, to turn full circle and, and actually realise that, that our fears um, in that area uh, weren't all that well-founded is that we stopped doing mastectomies for breast cancers and we started doing a lot, a lot more lumpectomies. Yeah. Now, a lumpectomy you can't reconstruct by putting an implant in or a rotation flap or a, um, or a tram flap. To, um, you, you need to fill up the divot. And the way that is best done for that is fat grafting. Yeah. So the very women that were at, at high risk were the women who are having fat grafts. So someone who's had a breast cancer is more likely to get a, a recurrence than somebody who's never had one. Can we just define what, what we're talking about? So you're, you're taking fat from, say, someone's tummy yes. with a big you know, cannula or a rod. No, with a, with a micro cannula, with Sorry. a very thin gentle well, cannula. In the olden days, in it the was olden a days. bigger sort yeah. of thing. And then you, 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 how are you processing the fat? Are okay. you centrifuging it? Um, yeah, so what, what, there, there are a number of different ways to process the fat, but basically you take the fat very gently by a liposculpture process. And, and I um, emphasize gently because you need living fat cells. Yes. So the cells have to be alive um, when, uh, when you take them, so you can't break those cells. And it has to be re-injected 
life uh, and and um, they have to be um, so carefully and delicately dealt with that they can survive in their, their new home in the breast. So the fat cells are taken, they're filtered so that the broken bits of cells, non-living cells, um, are washed out. Yeah. Um, and then it's concentrated either by um, a further filtration process or a centrifuging process. Yeah. Then it's loaded into syringes and then it's injected at needle point into the breast. So there's no scars to the breast when we do it. And am I right in saying that you have to lay them in a nice little mountain or however you want to put it? Yes. So, so they conform, but also they will get a blood supply. Exactly, yeah. So there's two parts in, in grafting. One is about the the aesthetic sculpting to create a beautiful shape. The other thing um, is about the survival of the cells. Now, if you squirt a clump of fat into the breasts, it's not going to survive. And it won't survive because those um, those free fat cells, those new fat cells that you've put in, need oxygen and nutrients to survive. And, mm. you, and the only way they can gain that is by diffusion from the, um, the neighbouring cells that have been living in the breast for a while. And so... Um, if you have a clump of fat, only the cells on the surface of the clump can gain their oxygen and nutrients. All the cells in the center die off yeah. and, and then cause a problem, cause lumps and cysts and stuff. If you layer the fat into thin little threads throughout the breast, building up a three-dimensional shape by integrating each of those strands of fat cells uh, in amongst um, already um, existing breast tissue, yeah. it gains its oxygen and its nutrients, then new little microscopic buds um, from other blood vessels grow in to supply them, and you've got permanent um, enlargement of your breast. Right. So what, from what I understand, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, hmm. um, someone needs to have a significant amount of fat tissue available to harvest in the first place. So how would you go about um, doing this procedure on someone who perhaps wasn't didn't have a lot of fat okay. to take. How do you sort of make sure you got enough to do? Is, it, is yeah. there a limitation there? Or? Oh, very much so. So, um, so it's a beautiful procedure to do. Um, luckily, the vast majority of women do have enough fat, but the the, the challenging ones are when you've got a slender patient um, who has a flat, tight chest then they are not suitable for fat grafting. You have to have enough fat deposits. Um, and so you need to have at least, you know, a, a healthy outer thigh or um, a, a little bulge in your lower abdomen or s something on your knees and your arms. You know, I can take a bit from the arms, a bit from the knees, a bit from the inner thighs, a bit from the outer thighs, a bit from the hips. So I can sculpt a figure and then take that fat and put it in. But if you are really slim, then, do yeah, and, and, you know, there are girls who are really slim and that's why they don't have breasts. But then they, you know, uh, they need an implant, not not a fat graft. Yeah. yeah, right. And is there a difference in the success of the graft depending on where you harvest those fat cells from? So different areas of the body will have a better success yeah. rate. No, and and those uh, there there have been lots of studies done, um, particularly in the earlier days uh, um, in the research of this, to to see if you know there are particular areas that are best suited. You can use fat from anywhere. It was always thought that the outer thigh fat and the lower abdominal fat were kind of the, the best areas. Um, I, I think it's more that there are bigger deposits there and therefore one can more gently take those. Um, but um, there are studies that have been done where they use fat that's, a, that's taken from vasoliposuction. In vasoliposuction, the fat cells are destroyed when they're put in yeah. um, and they get 
permanent survival there. And in fact, that's probably not permanent survival. What we believe is really happening there is that we're stimulating the natural breast to, um, when, when you put that fat into the breast contains a lot of stem cells. Well, that was my next question. Yeah. So is there, is it more than just a mechanical or a structural thing of putting a blob of fat? Is there more to this? Yes, there is. So, um, and we, it's still not really well understood all of the things that come together to make this work. Um, we know that there are, there are a few things that we know are, are vital. How gently the fat's taken, how gently and carefully the fat's injected. Yeah. The other thing that seems to make a huge difference is how long the fat is out of the body. So remember these cells, these cells need oxygen and nutrients. So if you take them and you, then you're spending a whole lot of time processing them and then you take a long time to put them back in the breast, try holding your breath for more than you know, <laughs> three minutes. You know, you need, cells need oxygen. Yeah, I've actually done this. I did a oncoplastic breast job at Bart's in London. Right. And, and I've done this, I've watched it, but uh -huh. it certainly wasn't three minutes. And, you know, we would typically quote to people and say, at least 50% of this isn't yeah. going to survive. Yeah. But what, what's the survival rate that you're talking yeah. about? So, um, okay, so survival rates um, are really hard to to sort out and it's because we don't have any standardized way. So when we when we look at studies, most most studies do say about 50%, some say 25, some say 50 if you're doing really well, maybe you get 60, 70 um, with a thing called a Brava, which is a suction device that kind of stimulates blood flow to the breast. Um, it's said to get 70 or 80. We get really high takes, mm. you know, I, I get really good fat survival. It's quite hard to quantify. And the way that we quantify it is that um, I will measure the breast volume beforehand and I do that with a displacement technique. So we basically dunk the breast in water and see how much um, volume it displaces and that yep. gives us a measurement. And we do that three times and then average it. We'll then repeat that six weeks after surgery and I call that point zero. Uh, that, that's our zero point and I'll explain why in a moment. And then we measure it again six months later and we compare what we get at six weeks to what we get at six months. Yeah. And what we're getting there is about an 80% survival, which is huge. But I don't think that's uh, that when one looks at, at the other studies and, and other surgeons that one can compare apples with apples because I'm measuring it at six weeks. But why am I doing that? Because when you do a liposuction, you first put fluid into the area where you're taking the fat. Now, the fat cells absorb that fluid. So they're swollen when you um, when you're taking them and when you're putting them back into the breast. There's also, um, because I don't do a lot of centrifuging because I, I don't like the destruction of the fat that can occur with that, my fat is a little more soggy. So the, there's a higher volume in it initially. Yeah. Plus there's swelling in the breast. So I'm allowing six weeks to lose fluid, to lose swelling in the breasts. But at that time, even if the cells aren't alive, they'll still have their bulk so you've not lost it. So for me... Um, at six weeks, I'm saying, all right, this is my fat. This isn't That's the a real fluid. fat cell that's not swollen, not boggy, et cetera. That's right. And so I start from there. And then at six months, I'm looking at the same thing. Yeah. And, I, and I'm getting really good fat survival at that, uh, at that level. Um, but that w it wouldn't be fair for somebody who then takes a syringe and says, I've got 100 cc's of fat, puts it in a breast, and then looks at it in six months. Because, of time. course, minus the water, it's going to be smaller. Exactly. And, and Yeah, Okay. So it's, it's hard to quantify. Are there any imaging techniques that you could use to get a more 
finite volume? Yeah. So the, um, some of the studies that have been done have been done with MRI. Right, so they'll okay. MRI the breast before and MRI the breast afterwards to get a volume. And that's how I started. When I, when I was doing this, I, I spoke to the radiologist and they said, listen, this is too inaccurate. And, <laughs> and so I, I was actually getting much more accurate measurements by manually measuring breast volumes and um, that, than we were when we were trying to, to image it. Yeah. Um, but we, we always do mammograms and ultrasounds prior to surgery and repeat them at six months because we need, we need a baseline beforehand and we need a baseline six months after the, the fat graft so you can say this is the new breast. Yeah. Because if something changes in the breast in the future, you've got to be able to refer back to something and say that was or wasn't there at that time. Yeah. Right. So will you sometimes do a hybrid, which might yes. be, say, an implant plus fat transfer yes. or graft um, to help mask, I guess, some of the demark, especially in a skinny patient, right, where you can get that outline, you can get like almost that stuck on look because you've just got such a dramatic yes. sort of uh, border where the implant is and isn't. So would oh. you use fat there to oh, mask that? Absolutely. In fact, it is, it is the new arrow in our, um, in our quiver. So Right. For those patients in the past that one looked at and, and I would counsel them and say, listen, um, I'll put this implant under your muscle. Um, I'll bring the cleavage as close as your muscle will allow me to. But you have to understand you are so slender that there is the chance that you'll get some edge visibility. Yeah. Today, you know, um, I, can, uh, I can get that patient to you know, go on a burger eating diet for a little while, which is fine. <laughs> and I don't need a lot of fat. But to just graft it over the edges of the implant, particularly in the cleavage, makes the world of difference. You know, the difference between somebody who is um, really slender and somebody who um, is average. If you look at the, the thickness of fat in the central part of their chest, there's not a huge difference there. It's, it's on their thighs and their arms that it's different. So you don't need a lot of fat to be able to pat out that cleavage to make it beautiful. Hmm. Right. Now, going back to what you're actually doing. Mm. So... It's easy to understand, you know, you went back to a lumpectomy and you just fill the hole. I yes. think anyone can understand that. Yes. But when you're talking about doing fat transfer yes. with a breast augmentation, how and where are you putting it? Is it over the whole breast envelope or just, just the cleavage? Yeah. Or no, So basically wherever it needs it. Okay. So um, very often in the cleavage, um, if the, say, if the breast is tubular shaped and you need more fullness in the lower pole of the breast, you can put the fat in the lower part of the breast. Yeah. Um, if um, and so, it it allows you another sculpting tool beyond the dimensions of an implant. Yeah. So you can you can put that fat anywhere. What you can't do is put the fat around the implant. So, uh, breast implants don't sit in the breast. Breast implants sit behind the breast. All of the natural breast tissue is on top of the implant and it must be because that's where breast cancers occur. Yes. So you've got to be able to see it with a mammogram. So either an implant goes um, just above the muscle, so with all of the natural breast tissue on top of it, or it goes underneath the muscle. So there is both the muscle um, and the lining of the muscle separating the, the implant from the breast tissue. Yeah. And so one then grafts into the natural breast, not around the implant. Yeah, this might seem like a stupid question. You mm. might might start laughing when I ask this, but could you ever do a fat transfer 
could you take fat from someone else? Because you can do like a blood transfusion, you can do organ transplant. Can you do, yeah. if you have like a fat brother or sister and you need extra fat for your worst <laughs> augmentation, could, could yeah. you borrow some? Not yet. No. <laughs> Not yet. It, it'll probably come one day. Yeah. But at the moment, it's like a blood transfusion. You're like, there are so many yeah, minor right. allergens. Yeah, in, right. Yeah. So, um, there's a thing called HLA type matching that you have to do right. as the most basic part of when you're doing transplants okay. from from a different donor. And, you know, we're not there yet and nowhere near it. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of people putting their hand up to donate oh. some fat to a good cause. <laughs> the, number of, the number of patients that come in and say, can you take it from him and give it to me? Yeah. Um, what sort of volumes are you using if, if you're, say, you know, you've done your implant, but you need to sort of cover the surroundings yep. versus a non-implant, okay. totally uh, autonomous? All right. So if you're doing a straight out breast augmentation with fat, to get, um, to get a volume that is worthwhile for the patient, um, satisfaction rates that patients start to appreciate, um, you need at least 200 cc's of fat per breast. Yeah. To, uh, you know, otherwise, you're just not making enough difference to satisfy a patient. And that's a similar volume to a small implant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, I'm usually, um, for, for my patients that I'm doing a straight um, fat graft to, um, I'm looking for somewhere between 350 and 450 cc's of fat. Per breast. Per or breast. Yeah, right. Per breast. Which means that, that I need to be doing about a liter, probably a uh, two-liter liposuction. Because yeah, right. remember, not all we have to concentrate the fat, take the good fat. Okay. And so, yeah. So I need, uh, I need to do a two-liter liposuction. Which, let's be real, that's a double bonus for most people. Oh my goodness, yes. You know, who doesn't want a flatter tummy and new boobs that's, rather than it, just it, new boobs? Is it not the age-old <laughs> joke? Can you not take the fat from my bum and put it in my breast? Yeah. It's, it, the, it, this is such a beautiful procedure for mums who have had babies. Yeah, the the breasts are emptier, so you've got the skin that you can fill. A tight breast um, it won't support the fat as well as as a looser breast will. So when you've finished breastfeeding and your breasts are um, are a little empty, and you're still carrying that um, baby fat from pregnancy that you're desperately trying to lose, it is the perfect time to take that fat and put it into your breast if that's what you want. Yes, you know? and and look, some some um, women just you see them bounce back after a baby like it's unfair. You know, they, they, they do it, they do it easily. And there are, there are other women who just struggle and they're proud of their figures before they had their children. Mm. But afterwards, it's, it's, you know, they didn't, uh, you know, they, they, yes, they wanted a baby. They didn't necessarily want stretched skin on their tummy and, and, and empty breasts. Yes. Um, so for those women that can't get back um, what they want by you know, exercise and stuff at the gym, if they've got unwanted fat and they feel that they want more volume in their breasts, perfect procedure. But I'm presuming a lot of those people in that category might need a breast lift. It's not just a volume thing. Uh, no, not always, but yes. Well, okay, so that's the other really interesting thing about fat grafting. With, when you need, uh, when you're putting an implant in, you get to a certain point. So when your nipple approaches the crease underneath your breast, what we call the inframammary fold. Once the nipple's at that level, you pretty much need a lift. If you put an implant in, the implant tends to fill the upper part of the breast and yes. the nipples point down, so it's, it's not a pretty breast. Yeah. So you get to a point when the breasts are relaxed enough that you, you need to do a lift if you're going to put an implant in. That's not the case with the fat graft. Okay. Because the, 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 the fat can go 
anywhere in the breast. So I can, if the if the bottom part of the breast is sitting below the the crease underneath the breast, that's no problem. I can still fill it there. I can't put an implant down in there because yeah. the implant stops at the, at the fold under the breast. Fat doesn't. You know, if you think um, somebody who has um, um, a, a slightly more saggy, empty breast. They gain 10, 15 kilos. Their breasts can look great. They're, they're so if you like. refill that upper pole, can it pull it back up? Um, so you, f you refill the upper pole and the lower pole. Right. And what you do is preferentially you fill behind the nipple, so you project the nipple. Yes. And if you think of a child on a swing, the swing not only swings forward, but it swings up. Yes. So if you can create projection by pushing behind the nipple, you'll also rotate the nipple upwards. Interesting. And so... Yeah, and so um, how one grafts that breast can allow you to um, to to not produce the scars of a breast lift um, and still give somebody a worthwhile um, augmentation. Hmm. Will you sometimes stage this and do it over two procedures or if someone needs to come back a second time for more volume, you'll, you'll yes. do that as well? Yes, okay. because yes, there's a finite amount that you can put into the breast at one time. Right. So once the, the tension of the tissues becomes too great, if you put more fat into the breast, what you'll do is you'll start to compress the microcirculation mm. and then it won't support the fat that you've grafted and then you'll lose it all. So there's, yes, you want to put in as much as you can, but there is, there is a point where the tension gets critical and you yeah. say no more today. Yeah, right. And so, yeah. and you can figure that out long beforehand. So that, that when I see a patient at consultation, um, you know, I say, I'll do your tummy and your hips and I'll put that fat in your breast. Next time I'm going to do your thighs um, and your knees or your arms and we'll, we'll do that as a second stage. Yeah. And so, and that's, I tend to only need to do that where somebody's really trying to go up several cup sizes. Right. I, I can usually get in one to one and a half cup sizes, you know, 350 to 400 cc's in, in one go. And, and this is true. I mean, of course, there's a needle point mm. with, that's going in, but it's, yeah. it's scarless. It's scarless, yeah. So the, uh, the fat graft is scarless and the liposuction has three millimeter scars. So they're very hard to find. And what's the recovery like on this versus, uh, and say, an augmentation behind the muscle? Where you putting an implant behind the muscle? Yeah. So fat graft is is actually easier to recover from from the the breast augmentation part. Um, surprisingly, in my practice, we have um, very little discomfort to the breast, and it surprised me because the, the breast is a very sensitive organ. You just ask any any woman when it's when they're in their premenstrual period, <laughs> you know, and breasts get tender. So you, one would think that if you're grafting fat at multiple levels around glandular tissue, that it would be quite a sensitive procedure. Um, my patients are remarkably comfortable. And when I say remarkably comfortable, I'm talking about they take Panadol afterwards. Right. Um, and um, and and I think partly the procedure has to be done so gently if you want good graft survival. And that's part of it. But the the other thing is we're not grafting into the glandular tissue. We're grafting around it into this space where there's easy expandable tissue and that's underneath the skin against the muscle yeah. within the substance of the breast but not around the breast glands. And so for that reason, it's not. And mm -hmm. what's the device that you're using to inject? Is it just a normal syringe with a, a, a needle or what does it look yeah, like? So it's, uh, so yes, and I use... Um, quite small syringes, so um, I, I, I won't graft with anything more than a 10 mil syringe. Okay. Um, but it has a, a special cannula that is, um, uh, um, yeah, about the thickness of a, uh, a 16 gauge or an 18 gauge needle. Yeah. Um, or, uh, and the, so 
it, the diameter of the needle has to be enough that you can get living cells to pass through yeah. without them breaking. Because they're quite globular. Yeah, and and so if you and the reason I use such small syringes is one because it can, can I can control how I lay it down, but also. A bigger syringe requires more pressure, mm. and when you create more pressure, you'll cause fat destruction. So, delicacy is everything here. Yeah. Mm. And what do you do if you overshoot the mark? Say you put too much in, and there's some asymmetry, or there's an area that looks a bit odd. How do you get rid of that fat so, I guess, delicately and accurately later? Yeah. So, it's never occurred, but, right. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one can do a liposuction to take right. the fat out. Um, but when, so, um, designing a breast augmentation with fat is is something that's done well in advance. So when we're taking the fat, we figure out how much fat we've got. It gets divided into two lots. If I've got one breast bigger than the other breast, I've already allocated it to one breast versus the other. And I've already designed exactly where I'm putting it. I know how much I'm putting in each area, in the upper pole, in the emptiness it would be in the lower pole. I've, I've designed a three-dimensional shape. So I've already figured out where that stuff's going. Okay, um, And it's grafted in according to a plan that I've I've uh, I've already envisaged in my mind's eye. I'd love just, to watch this. Yeah, because I'm, a, yeah, I'm thinking from a face when we do dermal fillers, there are more defined points like mm. the cheekbone, the chin. It it seems more rigid, and there's a stable platform for mm -hmm. your filler. Whereas mm. the breast, it's just a space. Yes. So how do you? Uh, I'm guessing the women were in a sports bar after and and. Yeah. and so on but is there any other care that they need to take um yeah so i mean this this is the this is the beauty of of um of doing a procedure like this this is true sculpting you know we're, we're, i'm building a three-dimensional shape i'm creating a beautiful breast from something that wasn't there and mm. so it's it's lovely but it's the same as a liposculpture a liposculpture is the same procedure in reverse, somebody has big thighs and it's not just that you're making the thighs thin. You're creating a beautiful three-dimensional shape, sculpting a waist that blends with hips that then produces a smooth curve over the thighs. And so um, it, it's, it's that it's that sculpting that is all part of this. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I love it. In terms of the aftercare, the way that, um, that I explain it to my patients is that your breasts are like two ripe peaches. Anything that is going to bruise your peach is something you don't do to your breast. So the, the, the fat won't move out of place. It's not like I put it in the top and if we don't support it, it'll drain down to the bottom. The, the breast is, is an organ. It's, it's got tissue. And if you think of it uh, simplistically as a sponge, if you're layering um, little seeds down in a sponge, they won't all fall to the bottom because there's a structure to the sponge yeah. that will keep it as long as... The, the particles are small enough to be resting in the tissue. So it, it integrates and it stays where I've put it. Yeah. The important thing is that we don't compress the blood supply. So you don't wear tight clothing. You don't manipulate the breasts. Um, if, if you imagine you were taking um, a little tree that you had in the backyard and you've decided you're putting a cubby house or a pool in the backyard and, so, and that's a tree you loved, it's your frangipani tree and you want to take it and you want to transplant it into your front yard. You very carefully take out the root system um, and dig out with some good soil around it. You then take it to the front yard, um, dig a hole, make sure it's got good soil in it, put it in, water it um, and, and nurture it. If you come out the next morning and you step on it, <laughs> it's got far less chance of surviving. Yeah. yeah. So 
it's the same with the breast. Once you put this stuff in, you you just have to look after it. It's just like putting a fence around a new tree, a seedling. That, that you, really resonates with David. He's a bonsai artist. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> so in terms of the recovery from this, yeah. um, the graft side itself, yeah. how does that sort of heal? Is it quite hard to begin with? Does it soften? How does, how does that sort of maturation or recovery phase sort okay. of work with these procedures? So it's, it's a little swollen to begin with. Um, and uh, uh, so it, um, it's like when um, a woman's milk comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're just about, you know, uh, uh, and I'm not talking about the first time because that's an explosion in the breast. Um, so when a baby's ready to feed, you know, mums get uncomfortable because their breasts are filling up again. Mm. And so when you first put the fat into the breast, it's kind of like that. So it's not, uh, um, my breasts aren't lumpy. Um, there's very little bruising, but the breasts are a little swollen. Mm. Um, and so that, that swelling settles down um, reasonably quickly. Um, you, you can move your arms about, you can lift, you can push, things that you can't do with an implant. Because if you put an implant in underneath the muscle and you start um, using your pectoral muscles, lifting and pushing stuff, you'll displace the implant yeah. until it's had a chance to set in. Uh, here, we don't have that issue. But if you bounce and jiggle the breast and create trauma, um, uh, or if you, you're pressing on it or lying on it, those things will create a problem. And so uh, after six weeks, it's getting pretty robust. I think after three months. People listening, wondering, is this a valid option to not go down the implant route at all? Yes. Yes. Right. In the right, in the properly selected patient. So if you've got enough fat and if you have um, a, a breast envelope that will allow me to put that amount of fat into your breast without beca- becoming super, super tight. Yeah. And that is, I've got to say, that is the majority of patients. Um, then yes, it's a good alternative. And why would you do it? If you don't like the thought of having um, a foreign, foreign material in your body, it's a great option. If you don't want scars, it's a great option. Yeah. Um, if you are on that borderline, do I need a, you know, I might need a lift. You can get away with this. Um, uh, um, the other, um, very, very favorable thing about it is that if you have a breast augmentation at some stage in your life, you will have a revision of that. Yeah. If you have a fat graft, it's, it's a one-off, it's a standalone procedure. Mm, it never has to be done again. And does it feel quite natural from the beginning or does it go through a softening over yeah. the next okay. few months? So, sorry, that was an earlier okay. question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so to begin with, the breasts feel a little tense mm-hmm. by about... 10 days, they're starting to get quite soft. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time you get to um, to two weeks, it feels just like a real breast. Okay. In fact, it is a real breast. That's, That's the thing about it. There's, That's very there's quick. nothing to feel. There's nothing to see. There's, you just wouldn't know that it was an implanted breast. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And what are the potential risks, complications, downsides yeah. just to okay. give people? So um, an, an understanding of the mammogram thing is is really important and it's it's a fear that uh, we've had in the past which seems not to be the case but you still need to tell somebody you've had a fat graft to your breast there'll be about two percent of patients uh, according to the studies where you'll see some calcium in the breast and there can be a question is it breast cancer is it um from the fat graft and the answer then is you biopsy it yeah just just like you do if you had a lump and you're not sure what it is, you biopsy it because we never want to miss a breast cancer. Yeah. What, what else? Um, you can, if you are 
perhaps not as gentle in your technique or if you're a little heavier handed and you produce um, clumps of fat, then you can get little oil cysts um, and, and so they, the breast can feel lumpy. Um, we haven't we haven't had any cases of that, um, but it's reported in the um, in the literature. And if they are troublesome, one can just drain those. You just pop a needle in because it's fluid. Yeah. Um, infection rates are incredibly low, which surprised me when I first started really looking into the procedure. My expectations were that actually it would be reasonably high. Um, it's it's they're they're very low. Hmm. Um, Probably the most significant thing is that depending on the technique of uh, who it's been, uh, who's doing the surgery or how carefully the patient's looking after themselves afterward, it's how much fat survival you get. Yeah. Right. We, we touched on it earlier and you said there's presumably something more significant going on with the stem cells of mm. the fat. Mm. Can you also flood or seed the area of PRP? Does that... Yeah. So that's, any... that's, that's one of the things that, that is being looked at. So they... They're currently, there are a number of people who will do fat grafting who will also take blood, spin it down, get the, um, the growth factors yeah. um, from, that's in, in the PRP, mix it in and inject it in because there are a lot of what they're called adipose-derived stem cells. It's a very rich source of stem cells and we believe that part of the take of the fat graft is actually new breast fat that's made from those stem cells. And, yes. and, and the reason for that is when they're looking at longitudinal studies on these, they watch that, that the size of the breast diminishes a little bit over time and then they get to about eight months and then it increases again. And we believe that that's the stem cell effect. Huh. Mm. That's amazing. So mm. you're almost laying some strips a little bit like, you know, some new lawn that you put down mm. and then the gaps sort of fill out with new fat cells. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. And what about weight gain or weight loss during this period? If someone loses a lot of weight, if they go on a diet or yeah. whatever, does that have any impact on survival or no yeah. impact? So not on survival. Right. So, so understanding that this is a permanent graft and so those cells are living, but they will behave like fat cells in any other part of the body. If you gain weight, they'll get bigger. So each cell will swell with more fat because fat cells are a storage organ for fat. So if you're gaining weight, you'll store more fat in them and um, the breast will get bigger. If you lose weight, then you'll take fat out of those fat cells and it'll become smaller. But interestingly enough, not to the same degree as elsewhere. So if you think about it, most women will have a problem area, their thighs, their lower abdomen, their bum, an area where they gain weight first and they lose um, weight last. And why? Because the proportion of fat cells in that area, the, the population of fat cells is much greater than the population of fat cells elsewhere. So while they're losing a bit of fat in those areas too, there's so many fat cells there that, you know, they, they get skinny everywhere else and they still have fat on, on their thighs. Yeah. Their breasts become their new problem area because we're taking such a, a significant population of fat cells from elsewhere in the body and putting it in the breasts that now, yes, with weight a loss, you'll lose a little bit of fat from each one of those fat cells, but you've got so many of them that it's resisting it. Conversely, when you gain weight, you're going to gain weight in your breasts first. Yeah, right. It's like, the um, they're like balloons, right? They just get bigger and smaller. That's right. That's right. The fat cells get yeah, bigger and you hear, smaller. You hear a lot of people complain about that. They're losing weight and then they start to look really gaunt and, mm. and wasted in the face, but they haven't reached the 
desired goal with their body yet because of that disproportionate that's sort right. of population that's right. of yeah. cells. And and that's uh, they're la- that's laid down at birth and that's laid down at, at puberty. So yeah. there are there are times in your life when when you get um, uh, uh, the explosion of new fat cells. Yeah. Right. Okay. And what do you think your proportion of augmentations would be this versus implant? Do you think you're leaning more towards these now? Um, so I, I mean, traditionally I do. 200 to 250 breast augmentations a year. So to um, to surpass that number with fat grafting, I've been working <laughs> awfully hard. Yeah, right. The procedure takes three times as long. Yeah. Um, that being said, I am very, very enthusiastic about fat grafting and a lot of patients who I think have become a little more wary about breast augmentations. Yeah, there's been a lot about, of scares recently yeah, with, 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 with breast implants. Yeah. Um, are very much leaning towards fat grafting. Mm. Um, and, 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 and lots of women, so women would sometimes come to me in the past and say, look, I'm happy with the size of my breasts. They're just empty at the top. Can you just put an implant up the top? And, and the answer is no, you can't. An implant fills the whole breast. So um, there's a whole, a whole group of women who are just a little fatter in their thighs than they want to be and a little emptier in their breasts than they want to be. Yeah. And they the they would ne- never necessarily go for a breast augmentation, but gosh, they'd love to have their thighs a little thinner and their breasts a little fuller like like they used to be 10 years earlier. Yeah. Beautiful procedure for that. I don't know if you can comment on this, but years ago there was a dermal filler released for the breast. Oh, mm. yeah. And uh, my understanding was there were problems with the, the filler just didn't sit in the breast. It sort of got squeezed into the armpit and all sorts of funny stuff. Did you have any experience with that? Or, yeah, or? Um, um, I did. And in fact, it, it was it was actually quite, um, it was quite a lovely procedure. But again, you had to do it right. Yeah. And the, the big problem with that was that um, doctors who, who were, it was a new product, right? There was a learning curve and uh, it seemed like such an easy thing to do. And so you'd get doctors who would get a syringe of this stuff and squirt it into the breast. Now, if you squirt a clump <laughs> of something into the breast, one, it'll encapsulate. Yes. Yeah? You, you'll form a layer of scar tissue to wall it off from your body. And secondly, it'll migrate. So it, it, because it's a smooth substance and once it has a certain size, then it, it takes on a life of its own. So... The problem with that product was that um, it probably wasn't given enough respect in terms of understanding what you were doing yes. and how it's best done. Again, if you layer it um, the same way that we do with fat crafting in little threads through the breast, it was okay. Hmm. But, you know, a loose artificial material in the breast just just doesn't sound like it a great idea. It doesn't sound right, but... I- I think that's where things are going in the next 10 years, Hmm. whether we do pec fillers or I I don't even know where we're going, but I think that's where we'll go next from the face to the body. Yeah. Um, I see. Pec fillers is a different story. Putting it in the muscle is is different. It's a much more structured organ. Yeah. Um, And also it has a a lining around it. So um, the pectoral muscle has... Um, has a fascia, a, a kind of a, an envelope that the muscle sits in yeah. and you can fill within that envelope. Mm. Um, like you can, you know, the, the fat pads in the cheek, they have a structure around them and, and if you re-inflate something that had deflated... It will stay there because it's walled that's off. Right. That's right. Whereas when you put something that's loose in the breast, it can migrate if it, if it can't get structural support. Yeah. Now, um, 
I'm not sure whether you're comfortable or not talking about prices, and if you're not, that's that's completely yeah, no, fine. That's fine. But in terms of the breast, um, the autologous breast transfer versus, say, a regular implant, are there yep. someone looking around the same price? Because you did mention that it takes three times as long, but I guess you don't have the implant. <laughs> How does that yeah, work okay. financially so, for people? Um, for my patients, and, and understanding, I'm a rather expensive surgeon. Yeah, because um, you're so, one of the best. <laughs> you can command that. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Um, but so, you know, a, a breast augmentation with me is just under $15,000. And, and you can get a breast augmentation for $5,000. So, you know, it's a lot for a breast augmentation. Um, so um, a fat graft and um, liposuction that takes two hours would be about the same. Okay. So if, you, if we were doing a liposculpture that took an hour and then we took an hour to put the fat in the breast, you're talking about an equivalent cost. It tends to happen, though, that when women, when, when patients then come in um, who have, um, and they say, yes, can you take it from my thighs? And I go, yes, that's fine, that'll work, and that will give us a lovely augmentation. And then it's like, yeah, and I've got some of my hips, and I've got a bit on my, th- yeah, my knees. And then, so what happens is you you end up doing a liposculpture. And, and I, I'm particularly guilty of that in my practice because I'm a liposculpture surgeon. My, my, my plan isn't just to... Um, it, this isn't just a debulking procedure. This is a sculpture, yes. and so I'm sculpting a whole body, and so I'm 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 often taking it from the waist, the hips, the knees, and blending it all into into harmony. And so, if we thought that a procedure, um, so uh, uh, probably about eighteen eighteen and a half thousand dollars, if you were having a more significant liposculpture and the fat grafting to the breast, yeah, right. as opposed to about fifteen. So they're, they're reasonable. I think that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Well, considering you're getting a liposculpture yeah. and a breast augmentation, new body and new boobs. We go back to that. Mm-hmm. Well, if you think about whammy. how much would spend to take a family on an overseas holiday, it could it could dwarf that really. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. and so really, if you're thinking about a liposculpture, you'd think that the breast augmentation part of that with the fat would add about $5,000 to it. Yeah. Now, Dr. Rostega, we've slightly breached our one-hour kind of limit, okay. but I think we've come to a nice natural end. You're going to have thousands of women wanting to get more information, <laughs> I can assure you. Um, how do they get in touch with you or your clinic? Do you have an Instagram? Uh, yes, we have an Instagram. Um, and um, do of course, I, I have no idea about all of these things, but I... I um, we have a website. Yep. Um, I can give you the phone number for the practice. Does yeah, sure. Go for it. Yep. Yeah. Um, the phone number of, of the practice is, is 02 for Sydney. Yep. 9362 yep. And your Instagram, because I've just looked it up, is at Dr. Underscore Anup Rostogi. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> and the website's just, is it just drrostogi.com? www.rostogi.com.au. Perfect. Thank you. Um, well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for making the time. You're, you're a busy, elusive man, so we're glad we uh, we managed to get you no, in here for a chat. We have Such a pleasure. the snow leopard. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I can talk about this stuff all day. I love it. <laughs> we might get you back at some point. It would be a pleasure. Thank, Thank you so, so much. much. Great to talk. Thank you.